Welcome to this, the ninth and penultimate um, theme in our series on um, the missional life, which we've been studying in our missional communities and in church. And today we are thinking about ambition. Ambition. When we think about ambition, do we think about it as a good thing or a bad thing? And the answer is, of course, if we're going to have a sermon on it, it's complicated. Our God, of course, is a God of limitless ambition for us for his creation, for everything he has made. And that's the message throughout Scripture. And without ambition, we'd all still be living in caves. Without ambition, we'd never have got out of our cots all those years ago. It's natural and good that we should aspire to be the best at whatever we do. Now, at the moment, I'm learning to be a barista and work the till in Cafe 1821, and it's a slow business, and Jan is teaching me to the best of my ability. And uh, this week, uh, actually just before I had the COVID, uh, two weeks ago, uh, a lady watched me struggle to ring up a coffee and a sandwich in the till and then make the coffee. And when Rahana took the cake over, she said to Rahana, now that guy there, there's a bit of astuteness here, uh, has the look of someone who's been in a really high-powered job, uh, but currently doesn't really know what he's doing. <laughs> and Rahana said, no, he's just a pharmacist. No, um, <laughs> but she said, no, I will improve. I will improve because it's my ambition to get it right, to be a credit uh, to the people I work with in there. Um, Now, a few people in the church like a little bit of a hike. Some people like a long-distance hike over several days. And and a good few people in the church have walked bits or all of the Camino de Santiago in Spain, 1,000 miles across, uh, across France and Spain. You know, no matter how pleasant the scenery or the weather, to get up and repeat your 10 or 15 miles every day for weeks on end is different to going out for a stroll to the canal on a Sunday afternoon. To walk a thousand miles, to walk for three months, takes motivation, takes perseverance, it takes ambition. I've done it. I broke my ankle about three and a half weeks in, uh, not even having crossed the French border, and I couldn't put weight on it for nearly six weeks. But I went back in the autumn, and I went back over two or three years and did it in shorter stages until I'd finished it. Why? Because it was my ambition. It was on my heart. In fact, it was so much on my heart, I decided I'd do it again backwards. About eight or nine years ago, somewhere just back over the French border again in lovely countryside on a beautiful day like today with the path going downhill as you come out of the Pyrenees into the plains of Gascony. I just ran out of steam and I came to a stop. Why? Because it was no longer my ambition. Sitting, reading the newspaper on a sunny patio on a little French hotel at the seaside was suddenly much more attractive. I could almost taste the fresh croissants and the freshly squeezed orange juice. And as they say in the army, son, where's your get up and go? It had got up and went, you know. A Christian life shouldn't be like that. It should be one full of passion and ambition uh, that doesn't wear out. And the opposite of ambition is not humility, it's passivity, it's sloth, it's timidity, it's sitting back while others do the pulling. It's possibly even on our worst days, judging others who are ambitious to see the kingdom of God built up. We play it safe and the best example in scripture is the servant who had one talent and decides to take it off and bury it and he achieved very little. Our ambition 
our, uh, our motivation in Christ should drive us onwards. Like the old hymn that isn't sung anymore, um, he who would valiant be, there's no discouragement would make him once first, should make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. We have set our hands on the plow and we shouldn't take him off again. The other flaw in ambition, sometimes in our ambition, isn't that it's weak, in that it's a little bit tarnished. Because we live in a selfish world, we live in a world where our vision starts small, it starts with ourselves and our families and our friends, it's much harder to expand it to the kingdom of God. We don't just want a nice house and a car, we want the best car we can afford or the best house we can afford. And it starts in childhood. We don't just want a little girl to be good in the dance competition. We want her to be better than the others and all the other mums and dads to see that she's better than the others. And this can affect our missional life, the creeping in of that competitive edge of wanting recognition or some reward into our ambition. Now, there are eight references and only eight references in the NIV to the word ambition. And six of these warn or condemn against serving God out of selfish ambition, which in some translations is self-interest. As James 3, 13 to 16 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by their deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if in your heart you're harboring bitter envy and selfish ambition, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly unspiritual and demonic for where you have envy and selfish ambition there you find disorder and every kind of evil practice now those are very hard words aren't they earthly unspiritual and demonic where ambition is not pure for that of Jesus but is crept in by our own ambitions as well the worst example of this in scripture is seen in Judas he had ambitions some of them overlapped as he thought with those of Jesus but largely they were those of himself rather than those of God And throughout the history of the church and in the church today, the more powerful the church, the more powerful its leaders, the more they are likely for their ambitions to be corrupted and for them to fall into sin. And it can start in fairly small ways in your missional communities this week. You might hear about the signs that come when your ambitions are a bit skewed, when you're doing things as much because you are driven to do them rather than because you are called to do them. These are some of the signs. You take pleasure in getting things done and boxed off. You become competitive and look for recognition or reward. Your integrity may slip and your patience or temper may worsen. You judge others rather than valuing their service. You prefer being busy rather than worshipping. Like Steve mentioned last week about the story of Martha and Mary, your satisfaction is in doing something rather than in coming before God. So how do we find the sort of ambition that God wants, the sort that pervades scripture from start to finish in those who he calls, from the call of Abraham right through to the call of Paul, the sort that is neither weak nor timid or passive, and so we sit back and do very little? But nor is it in any way got elements of self-centeredness or our own vision it, but looks to God's ambitions for all of us, for his creation, and joins in with it. Well, John Tyson, who's written this course, uh, says there are three elements uh, to this sort of ambition. So if you could have the next slide. 
It's a well-known picture or little video on the internet. There's several of them. In fact, there's quite a lot of them. When a baby gets its first pair of glasses and suddenly sees its mum or dad clearly and its eyes light up, we need to change from a vision that's born in ourselves to develop uh, what's called a kingdom vision. Now, in today's reading, Nehemiah, who is a wine waiter, a steward to the Persian king Artaxerxes, he hears that his relative has returned from Judah, where, as you'll remember from when we did this two years ago, the Jews are living poorly and in disgrace in the ruins of Jerusalem. And he doesn't say, well, how was your trip? And he doesn't say, how's Auntie Beryl? And he doesn't say, did you meet my friend Bob while you were in Judah? He says, tell me, tell me about the state of the people of God. And tell me about Jerusalem. Tell me about the city of God. The city where the Psalms and Isaiah uh, constantly say it's where God dwells. What he protects, that he will redeem. Where he will be worshipped. And from where all the nations will come to see him. Tell me about the purposes of God Nehemiah says, because Nehemiah has more concern for the welfare of God's people than he has for his own welfare. He has more concern for the purposes of God than he does for his own worries. His ambition is to see God's kingdom built, and it comes out of seeing things the way God does, not the way that he himself would. And um, if we sometimes were to rearrange the Lord's Prayer in the way that we often pray, we'd be saying it backwards, wouldn't we? We'd be starting with the lines in reverse. Deliver us from evil, lead us not into temptation. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Of course. Give us this daily, uh, this day our daily bread. Of course. But it doesn't go like that. Jesus ordered it this way round. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we're going to grow, we need to get a wider vision than our own vision of God's vision, of his heart and his purposes that keeps his ambitions central to our ambitions. Secondly, Steve, we need to be deeply challenged by what we see. The second part of godly ambition isn't just to share God's vision, but then be motivated to act on it. And like Bond's classic martinis, are we often shaken but not stirred up to do anything? This has been the theme of sermons going back 30 years, hasn't it? It was even the title of a spring harvest about 25 years ago. But why? Why do we not act? Is it that we just dismiss the gnawing in our hearts? Do we allow ourselves to be numb to it? Do we get overwhelmed by the scale of the task because we're seeing things our way? Do we just get distracted more than ever before in this generation? So many things on the TV, on our phones, on the computer, with other people for just to lure us away to actually allowing what we see to be stirred to do something about it. But Nehemiah doesn't allow those distractions. It says he sat down and he wept. He fasted and he mourned and he prayed for some days. Actually, it's four months between uh, the news he gets and coming for Artaxerxes. And during all this time, he's asking God to stir up something in him from what he's seen for the ambition to take action until the time is right. Like that day in the 1450s where Martin Luther said, you know what, you cannot buy your way into heaven. I'm going to go down the cathedral in Wartenberg and stick that note on the door. 
Like the day that Rosa Parks said in Alabama in 1955, you know what? It's not right that just because I'm black, I have to give up my seat for someone of any age just because they're white. Like the day when the prodigal son realized the wastefulness and hurtfulness, not just to himself, but to his family and to God, of his behavior and the life choices he made. Enough, 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 and something in us determines to change. Like the day we first came to faith, we don't want to live like that anymore. We're going to do something about it. But of course, that's just the start. And on a smaller scale, when we feel a call to joining God's purposes in a particular church ministry, talk to a particular person, reach out to a particular group, step back from a particular ministry because we're feeling it's right to do something different. As the saying goes, great occasions for serving God come seldom, but little ones surround us many times a day. God didn't like the way things were, and neither did Nehemiah, and so he resolved to do something about it. God is pained by the state of our society, by the lost and the broken and those suffering from the way things are, and he has ambitions to do something about it that should stir up us up as well. But of course, the third thing is not just to see what's on and be moved by it, but to do something about it, to actually act. Rosa Parks didn't just reach the point of feeling aggrieved. She went out that morning, Steve, and she went out that morning resolved not to get out of her seat until the police dragged her away. The prodigal sin just, didn't just resolve to get up and go home and go to his father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you, and you know the story. He actually had to get up and take that first step homewards. And many other examples in Scripture, if God stirs your heart to do something at some point, to make any sense at all, you have to actually do something. And Nehemiah's prayers have empowered him. You are the God of heaven, he says in verse 5 in today's reading. The great and awesome God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He acknowledges God's sovereignty and power. I confess the sins of the people, including my sins and my father's family, that we've committed against you. He takes responsibility for his part, no matter how small, in the way things are. He's expanded his vision, he's been challenged by it, and now he's ready to act. What does he do? Well, we did this two years ago, and it's not immediately the point of today's story, but you'll know that the Persian court has strict rules. You remember in Esther, how, uh, how her father, her uncle, sorry, said to her, you've got to go and tell the king that, uh, that Hagar is going to kill, is going to kill um, not Hagar, is going to kill all the Jews. And she says, not even wives can come into the presence of the Persian emperor without an invitation on pain of death. Well, there's another rule. There's a rule for cupbearers as well. When the king raises his hand, you walk over and put wine in his cup, and then you back off, and you do nothing and you say nothing. And you'll remember that in the story in Nehemiah 2, he breaks that one rule and he dares to look sad and broken in the presence of that Xerxes. And when the king asks why, he's immediately bold enough to say, well, my people are in trouble, my people's city is in ruins, and you know what? I feel called to go and do something about it. Can I have a year off? And not only that, can you provide me with timber and messengers and protection and letters of authority? And can you pay some of the bill? You know, he's emboldened by his heart being moved because his ambitions are those of God. And it says in the story, in 52 days, he fought off opposition. He restarted worship. He rebuilt the walls and he achieved more in those 52 days than everybody else had achieved in the 52 years that had gone before it. Now, Nehemiah could have been executed, 
We're not going to get executed. We might just get wet reaching out to serve somebody else in God's name. We might get brushed off or embarrassed. We might fail at what we're trying to do. We might get judged by others. But the message of Nehemiah 1 is that when we share God's ambitions and are willing to act on them, he empowers us to do things that we would never have thought ourselves capable of. The rest is in God's hands, of course. And that's true humility that James was talking about. So, Steve, we have a very, very ambitious God who has plans that have stretched throughout eternity to restore his creation and his relationship with everyone in it and who calls us to share those ambitions and those plans. Each of us will have a different part to play in that. And like Nehemiah, we can copy a godly, empowered ambition that's somewhere between being so humble that in effect I'm just being passive and stepping back and allowing ourselves for that ambition to be tainted by the need to satisfy something in ourselves or get something out of it. We all have different gifts here. Our place in God in carrying out his ambitions will be very different. Some people will be called into high-profile ministries they never believed they could do. Others, I see in humility, are taking up what appear to be very unglamorous tasks to enable missional purposes to be delivered by others. I see every week people quietly reaching out to people in a way that makes them feel valued and welcomed. Now, this may not seem like radical sacrificial action, but many of these things are completely the opposite of the values that we hear about all the time in society. As Steve preached on last week, it's all motivated by calling and relationship. Remember last week's reading, John 15 and verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you won't bear any fruit. Best example, of course, is this sort of sharing in God's ambitions and being empowered by them, is Jesus himself completely in touch with his Father's will and purposes, his vision only that of the kingdom, his desire to act only as God wants, and then the readiness to take risks and act sacrificially as a result. And according to the notes you'll be studying this week in your missional communities, you can tell when you're serving because you are called and not just driven, the opposite of those faults that I listed at the beginning. You start to value people's obedience over the results they're achieving. You celebrate God's work in others and the way he's changing them and what they're doing without criticising or comparing in any way, especially if they're doing better in their ministry than you are. You don't get jealous. You think about how you're growing and worry about the lives of those you're serving and not just how your service looks or what it's achieving. These are the values of those who are called to serve in the kingdom and to share the ambitions of God.